News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What does consciousness mean? At this hour of the day, for most of us, it means just being awake, right? But there are people who debate and discuss the deeper meaning of consciousness all the time. Take our next guest, for instance. Dr. Philip Goff is a professor of philosophy at Durham University, host of the podcast Mind Chat, and his latest book is called Why? The Purpose of the Universe. And yes, it is about consciousness. He joins us now to talk more about that. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Simi. Good to be here. Good to speak to you. Dr. Goff, how do you define consciousness? Yeah, it's a good question. It is a bit of an ambiguous word, but I think the way most scientists and philosophers use it nowadays is simply to mean so pleasure, seeing color, hearing sound, any kind of inner experience or inner life. And the challenge really, it really is one of the great unsolved mysteries of science. You know, despite our great progress on our scientific understanding of the brain, we still don't have really even the beginnings of an explanation of how the brain manages to produce consciousness, that inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life. So it's still a big mystery, really. So why is there such a debate about it? Well, there's a bit of a civil war going on at the moment, I'm afraid. Um, A couple of weeks ago, over 100 researchers signed a a public letter uh, declaring that one of the leading scientific theories of consciousness, something known as the integrated information theory, was pseudoscience. They branded it just just a waste of time, branded it pseudoscience. And very quickly, some other researchers in the field rejecting this letter as poorly reasoned and uh, over-the-top disproportionate. And so there's been various back and forth with uh, online skirmishes with, with no sign of this, this clear, really. So there is a bit of hot debate at the moment on the topic. Interesting. Okay, so then why does it lead us to this? Like, Is it because we can't map consciousness? Uh, we can't see the activity in the brain? Is it because we can't completely define it? Therefore, that's why there's a debate? Yeah, it's a very good question. In my take on this, I'm sorry for this in a way. My take on this is we're not making progress because we're treating consciousness as a purely scientific issue. Whereas I think when it comes to consciousness, we need philosophy as well as science. So science is all about experiments, what we can learn from experiments. And that's, of course, hugely important. But when it comes to the unique case of consciousness, We've also got direct access to the phenomenon we're studying just by being conscious. I'm in pain. I'm directly aware of my pain. I can think about it. I can tell you lots of things about it. I can give you information about my experiences couldn't get from studying my brain from the outside. So we've got an additional source of information about consciousness in addition to what we can get from experiments on the brain. So I think we need to work with both of these sources of data, what we can know from experiments about the brain, but also what we can know from the inside, as it were, just by being conscious. And that's effectively to say we need to work with both science and philosophy to make progress on this. And that's what I, in my new book, as you kindly mentioned, Why the Purpose of the Universe, I try to explain how science and philosophy can work hand in glove to finally make progress on this deep riddle. No wonder that's controversial because the the science conundrum has always been, Dr. Goff, hasn't it, that you have to be able to see it to prove it? Exactly, yes. So this is the problem with consciousness. It's not a publicly observable phenomenon. I can't look in your brain and see your feelings and experiences. So if you're just going off what you know about from experiments or observations, you wouldn't believe in consciousness at all. You'd think we were just complicated, unfeeling mechanisms. We know consciousness exists in a very different way, not through looking through microscopes, just by being conscious, feeling our own pain, being aware of our own experiences. So we know about it in a different way. So we can pretend it doesn't exist and just say, no, I'm only interested in experiments. That's what people did for a lot of the 20th century, effectively. They just pretended consciousness didn't exist, hope the problem will go away. But 
that's not really sustainable. So I think we need to we need to study what we know about consciousness from the inside, what we know about the brain from experiments, and try and find ways of bringing them together in a single integrated theory. And that's what that's what I focus on in my research. You talk about philosophy working hand in glove, though, with science. When has that ever happened before? Well, you'd be surprised, actually, on consciousness. I think most scientists, uh, and, and as well as philosophers, do appreciate that they have to work together. Maybe, it's, maybe they disagree slightly on the balance. But you're right, in society more broadly, I think people don't really know what philosophy is and don't think it has any, any role to play in finding out about the universe. But actually, because consciousness has been so puzzling, scientists and philosophers have turned to more radical approaches. One view I've defended called panpsychism in my work involves the idea that consciousness goes right down to the fundamental building blocks of matter with fundamental particles like electrons and quarks having incredibly rudimentary forms of experience. And then the complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow built up from these basic kinds of consciousness at the level of fundamental physics at the foundations of the universe so these ideas that were sort of laughed at and thought of as not very serious insofar as they were thought of at all are now really coming to the fore as scientists and philosophers see we really need to come together and have a radical new approach if we want to make progress on this we've just sort of got nowhere for many decades so Hmm. we need to try new things are there multiple theories of consciousness Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, part of the, the, the recent controversy was um, arose because the neuroscientist Christoph Koch uh, publicly conceded defeat on, on a bet he had 25 years ago with the philosopher David Chalmers. He said, in 25 years, we'll have this all wrapped up. You know, we'll have solved all the myths of consciousness. And he finally admitted after the latest round of experiments were also inconclusive he, he, gave him a, he gave the philosopher a crate of fine wine to accept that this was tricked that he'd thought. So the state of there are many different theories, both scientific theories, philosophical theories, with very little consensus, other than really we need some radical nuances. And part of what I've traced in my, um, in my work is that this problem is really built into how we set up science in the 16th century, in the philosophical foundations of the scientific revolution that the father of modern science, Galileo, set up in the 16th century. He saw this problem many hundreds of years ago, and he said, well, look, that's too hard. If we, if, if we wanted mathematical physics, we need to put consciousness out of the way. We need to design science in a way that ignores that. Uh, and that went really well for a long time. The irony is that we now want to bring science into consciousness we're going to need a radically new approach. And there's starting to be quite a lot of consensus on that, at least. I just want to ask you one more thing about the fact that there are other scientists out there who, or you know, people who don't believe that consciousness even exists. So then what do they think that is? That inner voice that you talked about, what do they think that is? It's a very, yeah, it's a really good point. There are so many radical approaches. So I take one radical approach that kind of consciousness is everywhere, is at the foundations of the physical universe. Whereas, well, the, the philosophy professor I do my podcast mind chat with that you kindly mentioned takes the total opposite approach. He thinks it doesn't exist at all. It's fairy dust or it's not proper science. Uh, so, of course, he'll qualify that. He'll say, well, in the sense we, used, we usually think about it. But he still believes in consciousness in a more mechanistic that, you know, as are you awake and you respond and you're conscious Consciousness in, in the sense of how you behave, how the parts inside you behave. He believes in consciousness in that sense. But if we're talking about something that goes beyond the purely mechanical, how things feel in a way that's not just about how they behave or how their parts behave, he says this is pre-scientific nonsense. So really, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're trying to model, construct in these polarized times, we're trying to model constructive disagreement, interviewing diverse voices on on the science and philosophy of consciousness. And yeah, we've got to consider these more radical approaches and see if we can work out a way forward. Wow. Who knows okay. who will end up being right in the end. I know. I was going to say, I, I need to listen to that. Dr. Goff, thank you for your time this morning. <laughs>
Thanks very much, Debbie. It's great to speak to you. Take care. That's Dr. Philip Goff. He's a professor of philosophy at Durham University. And the podcast that he's talking about there is the one that he hosts called Mind Chat. He also has a number of books. His latest one is called Why the Purpose of the Universe. But I can't even imagine having, we think about it's difficult to debate two sides of an issue these days, or especially in politics. He's got an episode of his podcast where he believes in consciousness. He thinks it's everywhere. The guest that he has on doesn't even think consciousness exists. That is going to be quite the debate, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. We're getting busy in Victoria today. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi. They're back. They're back. Summer's over. They went away in the spring and they're back and they're different. Because for the first time in many, many, many years, we have two, four official parties in the legislature. Three of them in opposition, and they're having a little turf war over who gets to ask all the questions when the House sits this morning, 10.30. So we're starting today to see how this is going to play out. Okay, so what are we kind of anticipating? And there's a new party to deal with. Yeah, so the Conservatives are now recognized as an official party, and as an official party, they have as much of a claim to be able to ask questions in question period as the Greens and BC United. They're smaller, same size as the Greens, so the official opposition is still BC United. They get most of the questions, but the Conservatives get to ask a question and a follow-up, as do the Greens. That cuts into the available time for question period, and uh, the parties actually had a little bit of a get-together, their House leaders, And, well, let's see how this works. Apparently, Simi, they've agreed that question period is a bit of a zoo, big surprise, and that maybe there would be more time for questions if the parties actually disciplined themselves and behaved themselves. So our colleague, Rob Shaw, reporting today... The party, I, I, I can only tell, know what I read in the paper, in this case, business in Vancouver. Uh, apparently, the parties have agreed, Simi, to 45-second long questions and 45-second long answers. Really? And the speaker, the speaker's going to monitor it and let us know at the end of the week how it's going. Now, you know, I can be awfully skeptical about things, and I have learned to be over the years But let's just say that if they can make this work, question period will be more effective. And it may well mean that they're making better use of it than they have been for some time. Okay, but this is going to be quite a change, though, right? Because you can't ask the same question over and over again. You can't have your long preambles. Can they actually do this? Well, I mean, on a good day, question period can be a very effective way to bring the government's failings to light, to at least embarrass the government into explaining itself and giving some answers, and showing that the purpose of the opposition is to hold the government account. That's on a good day. On a bad day, it's an exercise in shouting and pointing and partisan invective, and the opposition asks the same question again and again, worded slightly differently, and gets nowhere, and the government simply tries to run out the clock with answers that are either beside the point or full of, yeah, well, you guys were even worse in government. So it, it, it can be an embarrassment. I, I think any teacher who's ever taken a class of students into the house to watch question period has afterwards said, now, don't you try that kind of stuff in the classroom. You're not going to get away with that in my classroom. <laughs> right. um, but as I said, on a good day, I mean, that the great one of the great things about the Westminster system of government is that question period is there to hold the government account. So I, I think that what they've agreed to do, if they do it, will make for a, quest, a better question period. Shorter questions, no long preambles. A little less desk thumping and heckling. Well, we'll see if they make that work. And the government's answers being to the point. I mean, the experience we've had, and it's been getting worse, has been the government members don't even address the essence of the question, never mind answer it. So uh, I wish them all luck. I hope they can make it work. And if they can, uh, you know, you've got three parties holding the government to account. 
and a government at least agreeing in principle that uh, it is it could be answer period as well as question period. Okay, and one of the other things we're going to be looking for here in question period is the arrival of this new party, the uh, BC Conservatives on this. So John Rustad, a little bit of a rough, I would say, last couple yes. of days because of his posting where people were drawing the comparison between what he was saying and, and Indigenous children being taken from their homes. Yeah, I mean, look... Um, Rustan had some good qualities and a lot of experience in the political arena, and he was kicked out of the BC Liberals when they still were calling themselves that, so he can't be faulted for having gone out to start his own party. He wasn't welcome in the opposition anymore. So you got all that, but he's got enough experience in the political arena to know damn well what he was doing when he made that posting. So... Global's got a good story on this. It's on the website. It's also on social media, on Rustad's feed. But here's what Rustad essentially says, and this is on Saturday, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. He says, today we remember what happens when the Canadian government thinks it's better at raising children than parents. I will always stand with parents. Now, he says, that wasn't intended to make any kind of a link to the controversy over the new, well, it's not that new, but the resource package for the schools based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Come on, he knows damn well. Well, that's exactly what it was, yeah. yeah. Exactly what it was, and that's how it's been interpreted. He's standing by his posting, and... The government, of course, privately, New Democrats, Simi, they welcome the arrival of the Conservatives. It makes it more likely that the opposition will be split among two parties, the center-right. That seems to be where it's headed. But on this one, even the New Democrats were moved to condemn what Rustad did. Uh, government House Leader Ravi Kalon uh, condemned it. Uh, the new uh, MLA for uh, John Horgan's writing condemned it. BC United, Eleanor Sturco condemned it. And had quite a and, bit of a back and yeah. forth between Bruce Bandman and Eleanor Sturco, yeah. You're right. I mean, we saw there the kind of split that's emerging. Sturco denounced it, said, you know, it's clear where this is headed. It's uh, discounting rights for uh, LBGTQ plus uh, students. And... Uh, he, she said that, and immediately the newest conservative in the House, Bandman, comes back and says, ah, this is just more woke nonsense. I, again, if that's the way the new conservative presence in the House is going to go, which is dividing the House on issues of uh, human rights, gay rights, um, something like SOGI, which was actually introduced in the schools by the, the BC Liberals, when John Rustad was one of their MLAs, yeah. um, it's going to get pretty ugly this fall. And that would be the dark side of the presence of the Conservatives in the House. Talking to Vaughn Palmer here from the Vancouver Sun. Fall legislative session gets underway in Victoria today. So Vaughn, let's talk about the agenda side of things. What do you expect that we are going to hear about? Well, the government has already made it clear that the biggest topic they will be tackling with more legislation is housing. Uh, housing minister, also the deputy house leader, and he says that uh, the time for talking on housing is gone and the legislation is coming. So we're going to see um, secondary suites legalized. We're going to see a freer hand for local government in cracking down on vacation rentals and Airbnb, legislation allowing that, maybe bigger fines. They're only about $1,000 now. And they're also going to be stepping in again to this issue of how much leeway do municipalities get in future uh, to hold up approval of needed housing. So uh, you've had the missing middle uh, policy here in Victoria, for example, got held up. Victoria Council tried to say through uh, a motion or through bylaw changes that henceforth you could develop uh, duplexes, triplexes, multi-unit uh, developments on in single-family neighborhoods. It's a big change here in Victoria, but very little happened. There were very few proposals come forward because, Simi, uh, the city council planning department put so many conditions on it, the developers looked at it and went, now nah, we can't make that work. So the city, the, the province says it's going to bring in legislation to limit 
how much municipalities can hold up, uh, limit their ability or, or give them the power to skip public hearings and expedite approval. So that's the housing theme, but there are other things happening. Um, one of the bills that I think will get a lot of attention is the provincial government, Simi, has pretty much admitted that local government was right when local government last spring began protesting open drug use in playgrounds, schoolyards, uh, sorry, uh, playgrounds, recreational spaces. Initially, the New Democrats, uh, they didn't think that was a great idea. They kind of discounted the threat. Uh, they're going to bring in legislation this fall to essentially uh, outlaw open drug taking in uh, playgrounds, uh, recreational spaces, and other public spaces in municipalities. Right. So those, do you think, will be the big things that they are going to be dealing with? And the, when the, the housing situation, there's a lot of pieces of legislation they keep talking about. Yeah, they are. there is a lot of legislation on this. David Eby has been, since he became housing minister at the end of 2020, uh, when uh, Selena Robinson, who'd been the housing minister, was made finance minister by John Horgan, E.B. very quickly began talking a very different line on housing. He said the number one problem out there was the housing supply, and he strongly suggested that municipal governments were the big obstacle to getting it done. He's added some nuances to that since then, but essentially the provincial government embarked on a path for the first time the province gave itself the power in legislation when EB became premier last year, the power in legislation, Simi, to overrule local government on housing. Um, they've said they will use that power sparingly, and I don't think because of the timetable we've given us, Simi, they will exercise that power before the next provincial election. They don't want to create any kind of an issue locally that would cost them a seat because some of the places like Oak Bay are represented in the legislature by the uh, New Democrats. But in the long run, they are essentially saying that if the municipalities won't take the incentives, provincial assistance for infrastructure, provincial, the province building affordable social housing in the riding and the community, uh, if the municipalities won't take the incentives, the carrots, then down the road, a municipality that will not go along and approve housing that is needed, the province will use its power to step in and overrule, overrule the municipality. Okay, so lots to watch for. You're going to have a very interesting session. Yeah, I think we're going to have a very busy, very interesting session. And look, Simi, uh, if you uh, follow what the Premier says, the next provincial election is just a, a year and a little bit away, October the 19th, Saturday, 2024. Uh, this is going to be the preliminary match of that election, because one of the things you're going to see is how effective are the Conservatives, uh, how likely are they to split the centre-right vote, what's the response of BC United, and frankly, can they make question period more constructive? Uh, I'm a skeptic, but what the heck, give it a try. We'll be watching it very much. The House sits for seven weeks with a couple of breaks. The last day of the sitting is November the 3rd. All right. Sounds good, Vaughn. Thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, Canada is known for being polite and diplomatic, saying sorry all the time. But are those very traits causing us some of the problems that we've been kind of having on the international stage? I mean, look at us fighting with India, pressure from China, giving a standing ovation to someone who fought with the Nazis. I mean... Maybe it's time for a change in attitude from within. Now, how would that help with our situation that we're in right now? Well, that's what's interesting about a piece written in the Globe and Mail by our next guest. David Polanski is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy and political theorist uh, who writes on geopolitics and the history of political thought. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Do you think we need an attitude change from within? Yeah. I mean, I do. And this is the problem is, of course, this is a very difficult thing to do, even in a country as small as Canada. You know, by small, I mean, not geographically, but, you know, we're talking about 40 million people, uh, which is still way more people than anyone knows. And so this sort of weird and complex dynamic between, you know, the majority and then the sort of uh, leadership and the elites uh, right now, I think that has fallen by the wayside in certain ways. 
uh, getting that back on track is not in, in any country, you know, no matter how small, is never a simple thing. I mean, think about how difficult it is just to, to just to manage a simple project with a group of ten people, for example. Okay, so where would we even start with something like this? What, what do you think we need to change it to? My answer is that, so a couple of things. One is, you know, obviously I have my own views on what, you know, Canada's national interest would be or anyone's national interest would be, and I'm happy to tell anyone over a beer what I think they should be doing. But the more difficult, uh, I think, matter is recovering certain uh, political habits of thinking about your country as a concrete place with its own specific national interests. Uh, that and, and thinking of your leadership as being charged with exercising uh, and defending those interests, as opposed to this sort of very vague and watery sense that we're at the end of history and the purpose of the leadership is simply to stand up and say the right things uh, and makes you know and lecture other countries on whether they're doing you know whether they're conforming with you know certain moral strictures and whatnot. This is very far, I think, from political reality and political responsibility. Okay, where has Canada fallen down, in your opinion, on this? Which again? Where has Canada fallen down on this? Like, what what has happened to us that has put us in this position? I'd say two things. Well, actually, I'd probably say a lot of things. But uh, I, I, let's just take a couple of them. Um, I think that there is a great deal of complacency that has set in over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, it's almost like the, uh, an entire leadership class kept reading those articles that come out once a year and say that Canada is the first or the second greatest place to live and figure that their job was done. Uh, and they basically <laughs> that's very, that's very true, by the way. That is very true. And I like Canada. I mean, I, I, should, I, should, I should stress that I'm speaking as an American here uh, who has come to Canada. Uh, so I have a sort of inside-outside perspective. I quite like Canada. And, and I, don't even dispute, <laughs> I don't even dispute the many uh, articles praising its virtues. But, of course, that doesn't mean that you don't have to husband its resources. I mean, one obvious example would be uh, throwing themselves into net zero. This in a country that uh, covers something like 2% of the world's service area and has a vast array of resources. That is a major strategic source of strength. Uh, throwing it out the window in pursuit of some sort of, you know, postmodern uh, economy that we haven't yet achieved, or LARPing as Belgium, that hasn't helped anybody. Um, thinking that your job is to go around lecturing other countries and sort of feeling safe from your northern position, that doesn't really work because in, in the end of the day, no matter how remote, Canada is still very much in the world. And to begin with, there needs to be the recovery of the house of thinking, what do we want from the world? What are our interests? And then linking that, and that I think has positive democratic feedback because it reminds you, it reminds our leadership that uh, they have obligations first and foremost to actual Canadians, you know, not to the angels in heaven and, and not to the UN and not to who you know, uh, editorial boards or Twitter or what have you. Uh, this is ultimately, I think, a democratic political uh, set of habits and practices that has kind of fallen by the wayside uh, as a result of feeling, oh, we're doing great. We don't have to do much more. That's a very Canadian thing, though, right? Like, I don't know how you change that mindset. Yeah, Canadians are complacent, uh, bless their hearts. But um, frankly, part of this, I think, I think it begins with recognizing that materially you're not doing as well as you thought you were and, not, and you're not doing as well as you were 10 years ago. Um, feeling that bite uh, has, <laughs> can be salutary. I'm not happy about it. I don't think anyone's happy about it. But sort of that, uh, that, that's a very strong reminder that you live in the world and that your position in the world and that the policies that you pursue have, uh, have costs. And, 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 and it, it can be worthwhile to pay those costs. It can. But it's one thing to pay the costs, and it's another thing to say that there are no costs, there are no trade-offs, there are no hard choices that have to be made anymore. And I think feeling that bite a little bit probably has woken Canadians up. Uh, and I'm not making a particular political point here, saying you have to vote for this or that leader. But I think that you have to be thinking about what is this person actually offering me? What is this person offering us? And what do I want for my family, my community, and ultimately my country? Hmm. It's an interesting idea. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's David Polanski. Uh, David is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, a political theorist as well who writes on geopolitics and the history of political thought. Has a very interesting piece in the Globe and Mail just talking about exactly what he just discussed there, is that maybe our identity 
is part of the problem, part of the issues that we have been having right now, finding ourselves in these tussles with China and with India and, and you know, being embarrassed on the world stage by what happened in the House of Commons and that maybe Canada needs to change our kind of attitude towards the rest of the world, that we need to be a little bit more... Um, I guess inward thinking, I think is what's uh, probably the best way to put that, but it's an interesting idea. This is Mornings with Simi. Love talking about the behavioral sciences when we can kind of dig into certain groups and behaviors, what makes us more likely to do things. This next story falls into that category. We're talking about uh, riskier drivers on the road and ride hail drivers are apparently more likely to take risks on the road. Now, obviously, we have a lot of questions about that. How do we even know this and what does that mean? Joining us now is Alexander Lefko, who's a PhD candidate in Management of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at McMaster University. Alexander, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. First off, your work is fascinating. I'm fascinated. Do you just like dig into the human psyche? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's definitely part of what we do. And yeah, it's very interesting and obviously has uh, very uh, significant implications for, for work and, and whatnot. Yeah, let's talk about ride hail drivers. Why are they more likely to take risks on the road? Yeah, so definitely. Um, so my colleagues and I studied the, so as you said, the risk-taking behaviors of, uh, we looked at taxi drivers, uh, ride-hill drivers, so those are people who are driving for companies like Uber and Lyft, um, and another group that we called the multi-job professional drivers. So these are people who are driving for taxi companies, uh, ride-hill apps, and also holding another job. Um, so it was actually this latter group uh, who was the most likely to take risks on the road. So uh, things like running red lights and carrying uh, weapons like knives to protect themselves on the road. And do we know why that is? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, professional drivers uh, face many risks on the road. Um, so first off, any driver is picking up strangers. Um, they're driving into unfamiliar areas. So they're at risk for experiencing kind of violence and harassment. Um, and many drivers are carrying weapons to protect themselves. Um, and when it comes to the multi-job professional drivers, um, they're also juggling complicated schedules of, you know, multiple jobs. Um, with very unsteady income. Um, so they are paid per fare completed rather than per hour. So they're doing things like speeding or making illegal U-turns to, you know, try to get more fares, try to get as many passengers as possible, um, which obviously increases their chances of accidents. Um, we also find with multi-job professional drivers, um, they're more likely driving at odd hours, right? Taking kind of evening shifts and things like that, um, where they may come across more kind of unpredictable or intoxicated passengers. Um, so again, this, this comes into the whole carrying weapons because they don't feel safe in their vehicles. Um, and then finally, um, you know, multiple job holders are typically working longer than people who only have one job. So they're not taking enough time to rest or to take breaks. Um, and we know that when people don't sleep well, they might have decreased attention and awareness. Um, and this actually will increase their chances of accidents. So definitely a lot of factors. And, um, you know, the multi-job professional drivers are experiencing this additional risk. So is it so because their life is just more precarious um, and so therefore that manifests with riskier driver behavior? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely uh, greater precarity, um, you know, trying to take on multiple jobs because they're just not making enough money um, in their, you know, in, in one job alone. So, yeah, that definitely kind of exacerbates their, their sense of precarity for sure. And so the guys don't have a choice, right? Because according to the work you did, a, like a percentage of ride hail drivers, like 83 percent, they even say that their work is unsafe. Yes. Yeah. So there's been um, some research by the International Labor Organization and they studied, um, you know, ride hill drivers from around the world. And yeah, 83 percent of people around the world are saying, yeah, my, my work isn't safe. I don't feel safe. So by helping them feel more safe, does that improve driver safety overall? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a number of steps, um, a number of things that can be done to kind of make the driving profession safer. Um, so definitely making drivers feel more safe. So, so one thing is that drivers really need to feel that they're supported on the road. Um, so especially when it comes to Uber and Lyft, um, these drivers are managed by smartphone apps, um, which kind of take the place of human managers. Um, and these human managers would normally control things like pay and performance and potentially address safety concerns. So a lot of drivers have reported that they get automated email messages from Uber and Lyft when they report accidents or safety incidents. 
Um, so I know both companies now offer kind of this live phone support. Um, but then again, drivers are still saying that, yeah, I'm still getting that same automated response even over the phone. Um, so I think as a start, just having that individualized support to drivers so that if they do call in with an issue or, you know, a safety concern that, you know, they feel that they're not alone and that their concerns are actually being addressed. Um, so that's definitely a key piece. Um, in addition to that, I think it's also coming down to, to better wages. Um, so one thing um, is that drivers may actually spend half of their shift uh, looking for fares and they're not being paid for this. Um, so doing things like government mandated hourly minimum wages may be a start um, as long as we're kind of taking those waiting times into account. And I think that would also help drivers feel that they don't have to race to, you know, to get the passengers to their destinations and kind of get as many people as they can. Right. But, you know, does that mean that other multi-job professionals, uh, would this apply to other people then, like who potentially work several different jobs? Yeah, I think so. So uh, the other piece is that, like I said, uh, multiple job holders in general are not taking breaks. Right. So they could be working multiple jobs. They could be sleeping less. Um, and we do know that when they have, you know, less sleep, this influences their performance. Um, it influences perhaps their health and their mental health. So, again, some of these things come into play where, you know what, we should really be pushing for breaks. So more breaks for individuals um, having kind of mandatory paid breaks, especially for people who are, are working in these multiple jobs because they aren't taking the rest they need. And we know that this has a significant impact on people, um, whether it's in the driving profession or, or outside of the driving profession. That's interesting. Alexander, thank you. Thank you so much. That's Alexandra Lefko. Alexandra is a PhD candidate in Management of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at McMaster University. They did a study about rideshare drivers and found that because it is precarious work, because it is very busy, it is stressful, they found that that resulted in riskier driving behavior because of just the, the stress of the lifestyle and the job there too. And they feel that uh, better wages, mandatory breaks would improve safety uh, on the road. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a precedent in Canada's legal history begins today as the trial of Cameron Ortiz gets underway. Now, he was a former senior official in RCMP intelligence and is accused of violating the Security and Information Act. It's taken four years to get to this point, to get him to trial. And there are lots of well, let's say questions and some concerns about what could be revealed here and questions and concerns about Canada's credibility in handling national security and espionage cases on a stage such as this one. So to talk more about all of this, we're joined now by Dan Stanton. Dan is a director of the National Security Program at the University of Ottawa and former executive director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Dan, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. How sensitive is this case, Dan? Like, what do we know about it at this point? Well, it, it is very sensitive. And, and what we do know is, you know, the accused is violated uh, the Security of Information Act in terms of unauthorized removal of, of classified information and what we call unauthorized disclosure with individuals or foreign entities. So it's about as big as it gets. Um, but a lot of sensitive issues around a lot of moving parts we're going to have a jury we're going to have issues as to what do we do with some of the classified information and at the same time be transparent enough that we understand he gets a fair trial so this is precedent setting this is this we don't know where it's going to go but uh as you alluded to canada's reputation is at stake here in whether or not we can safeguard uh, classified information. Okay, maybe you could explain to us and how tricky is that? Obviously, uh, some of this trial has to be public, but how much is going to be hidden? Yeah, see, that's what I think the defense's strategy is. It's kind of to call out or challenge the Crown to, to bring forward, let's say, all the information, maybe, let's say, that he disclosed, which the government wouldn't want to do. So there's a little bit that's probably what's been going on the last three or four years is negotiating that and seeing what it all is going to be divulged, what's going to be disclosed in the court uh, in order for the Crown to make its case. And um, so we'll have to see as it unfolds. Issues such as can the jury members listen to or, or read or see things that are highly sensitive, uh, or will that be simply the judge in camera? So we really don't know how it's going to unfold. So has this happened before or are we in uncharted territory here? 
totally uncharted in terms of this. We've had, uh, you know, Jeffrey Delisle was prosecuted successfully uh, under this piece of legislation for providing classified information to Russian intelligence, but he confessed. Uh, we had another trial, his name was Huang, who was uh, offering information to China. It was thrown out because it took eight years for the Crown to decide what they wanted to do and wanted to disclose, and we've had a few other cases. So this is the first that's gone this 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 far uh, to an actual prosecution, uh, and uh, and and there'll be a lot of eyes on it. Canada's had, uh, as you know, issues with leaking, particularly mm-hmm. in the last year. Not to mention these these espionage and attempted espionage cases. And so the question for allies is going to be: Is Canada capable of prosecuting uh, leakers um, with the legislation, the tools they have? And so how high up, how significant was this position? Because I understand he was uh, the director general at the National Intelligence Coordination Center. What does that mean? Yeah, well, it's it's not so much his position in the hierarchy, uh, which was, you know, overseeing a lot. It was largely criminal. I think it was cybercrime investigations. But the fact is he had access to a very wide and deep pool of sensitive information, both signals intelligence, we call it, and human intelligence, perhaps human, uh, and some from our other partners. I mean, Canada imports a lot of intelligence, particularly from the United States and the United Kingdom. Would he have seen that? Would he have downloaded those files? Would he have accessed that? So not so much his position in the RCMP, but the unfettered access he would have had to very sensitive information and what he may have done with that. Hmm. Okay, so what do we know about this case in terms of how this was uncovered? Uh, well, we publicly it's been identified that, that U.S. law enforcement um, sort of nudged the RCMP that there was a problem uh, in terms of, I guess, seeing that he had sent something. That It appears to be that he sent a document, and then that hit some tripwires, and then I guess you just follow the breadcrumbs back to uh, the RCMP or to him. So that seems to be how it started, and then the government had its own I would imagine, you know, covert investigation and and searches and evidence collecting until he was charged back uh, four years ago. Now, you mentioned the act involved in this. That's the Security of Information Act. Has this been tested before strongly? Not like this. Um, You know, it's been used. uh, And, you know, there's a number of individuals charged under it right now. There's a fellow um, former RCMP who's been charged you know, relating to Chinese foreign interference. So it is a real test for this legislation that's been around about 22 years, which in many ways replaced the Official Secrets Act, which was, you know, archaic and somewhat ineffective. So it is a real test on this. Issues we have like intelligence to evidence, uh, what intelligence can be disclosed in the court, things like that that have been sort of, I'd say, bouncing around for a while with the government to get sorted out. Well, here's an opportunity to get it all sorted out. So it, it will be a test case for some other aspects uh, to the legislation. Right. You mentioned uh, that there's a jury here. How can the jury make a decision on this if they can't even necessarily see all the information? <laughs> Good I don't question. understand. I, don't, I really don't know. Um, you know, there's going to have to be something there. I can't imagine that as they select the jury, they're going to get them all, you know, top secret special access clearances in a week. So it, there must be some way that that the Crown's going to present their case to the jury and the defense. But when they get into the details of the intelligence, that'll have to be in a separate in-camera hearing, perhaps with just the judge. Right. So perhaps the details will not be, the jury won't be privy to that. So our allies would be closely watching this because obviously they share information with Canada and they don't want to see that information end up being a part of this. Certainly. And you see what's happened recently. There's been some leaking on India uh, with respect to the, uh, you know, the murder of Mr. Nijar. That implicates what we call the Five Eyes, Five Eyes Intelligence Community. So I would say uh, our allies will be looking at this case to see, can our Canadian partner keep classified information secrets? Um, what does it mean for people to leak? Uh, let's say he's acquitted. Uh, I would say it's almost uh, sending the wrong messages to certainly in Canada that there really is no offense to leaking uh, classified information. Hmm. So much uh, to at stake here. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Oh, my pleasure, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible that the big one that we've all been waiting for, as in the earthquake we've been told our entire lives is going to happen here, is it possible that that earthquake could be bigger than what we expect? Yes, it is possible, and there's lots of work that is being done on that. So joining us now to talk about it is Dr. Harold Tobin, who's a professor and Perils Endowed Chair in Seismology and Geohazards in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington. Dr. Tobin, thank you for joining us. Good morning. How can we determine what a future earthquake might look like? Well, in our region, uh, unfortunately, we have a couple of different types of faults that um, are sources of possible earthquakes. Um, you know, we, we do have the possibility of the big one coming from offshore that everybody's heard a lot of, perhaps accompanied by a tsunami. But we also have what we call crustal faults, these faults that run through the region a lot closer to the big cities, um, Seattle, Vancouver, and Victoria, um, in our region. And um, they haven't had any earthquakes in historic times, so we have to rely on geology and really amazing sort of forensic clues to tell us about um, what kinds of earthquakes those faults could produce. And it turns out that they really are hazards and add to the hazard that comes from offshore. Okay, so tell me about these clues that we get. Where do they come from? Yeah, we have a field called paleoseismology, and that is what it sounds like. It's uh, it's sort of like the paleontology, but of earthquakes. So we look for um, clues in the in the soils, in um, lakes, and uh, other places like that that come from places where the ground has ruptured in the past. So there's been a fault line that's come to the surface during an earthquake and left, you know, something from hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, even tens of thousands of years ago uh, as a clue in the landscape. Um, one of the things that people look for is evidence of past landslides and, and ground breaks and uh, natural faults damming up um, rivers and streams and then drowning trees. And the interesting thing about that is now a really expanding field is using tree ring dating dendrochronology, to um, actually get the dates down of earthquakes that happened long before we have a historic record. Okay, but how does that show up in a tree ring? How does an earthquake show up there? Yeah, well, one example is if, um, if a, a fault forms and it actually creates a sort of natural dam, then it might flood a region and drown the trees that are living in that particular spot. Well, those trees, they die um, because, of, because of that drowning, but they leave a record of the year that they died in from the last tree ring before the bark on the outside of the tree. So if you can find the, the logs um, or the standing trees, even in some cases from those events, and any one tree that dies, of course, you don't know what it means. But if you have a region with a pattern where a bunch of them have actually you know, met their demise in the same year, then that's a clue that something specific happened at that specific time. And of course, you have to separate it from all the other possible effects, fires, uh, climatic change and other things. But it turns out that especially around the Seattle region with our lakes like Lake Washington, Lake Sammamish and uh, um, and the kind of the rugged topography around here, there's sort of a rapidly expanding understanding that we have a, a real tree ring record of some of these past earthquake events. And what are those tree rings telling us? Well, what we're seeing and this, this new study that was just published by a group that I'm, I'm not part of, but I'm tremendously impressed by this work, is that uh, we have a fault called the Seattle Fault. It's been known for a while that it exists, uh, several decades. It runs through the uh, south of downtown, right in Seattle, um, and, but also across Bainbridge Island and some of the lakes here. And um, it was known to have had an earthquake about 1,100 years ago. Um, now, with this new study, that earthquake has been dated to exactly the year 923 A.D., just by coincidence, exactly 1,100 years ago um, this year, because uh, uh, the, the tree rings show that all those trees died somewhere between the fall of 923 and the spring of 924 when the tree would start growing again. But there's another fault to the west of us called Saddle Mountain Fault, and it turns out it happened in the exact same year. There was an earthquake on that fault on the in, also in 923 A.D. based on the tree rings. What's that telling us? Um, it says either that actually those two faults linked up to form one even larger earthquake um, than we previously believed possible, or there was sort of a, a horrible year where two magnitude 7.3 to 7.5 earthquakes happened, bang, bang, hours apart, days apart, months apart, but no more than about half a year apart. Okay, so once again, though, it sounds like what you're saying is we are overdue and it's going to be bigger than what we thought. 
Well, here's the good news for those Seattle Fault and Seattle Mountain type earthquakes. It is um, pretty clear from the same study that no other event bigger than that or as big as that has happened in the general Puget Sound region um, down here in the last 16,000 years. That's probably the biggest event since the ice was here during the last ice age. That's really good news. That maybe sets the bar for how big one can be. doesn't mean there weren't smaller, smaller events, and certainly there were. On your side of the border, um, there's been a huge amount of research in the last 10 years showing that a number of faults on Vancouver Island, like the Leech River Fault, formerly thought to just be an old, dead, inactive geological feature, is actually a fault that has had earthquakes several in the past few thousand years. Um, so these events are adding up to be something where each individual fault doesn't necessarily have um, uh, earthquakes very often, more often than a few thousand years, but put them all together and they make a significant risk. I should say, none of these are as big in terms of magnitude as the one from offshore that people think of as, quote unquote, the really big one, you know, the, the tsunami inducing earthquake that would come from the ocean. Um, this is separate. These are different faults. But of course, our hazard to our cities and our population centers is additive, right? It adds up from all these different kinds of uh, possible earthquakes. Are we good at um, like tracking these? Are we good? Do we have good hazard models? I think our hazard models are continuously uh, needing updating, and this new study definitely compounds that and shows that. Um, for the Seattle region in particular, we need to change the hazard model. Um, for Victoria or Vancouver, you know, that's also ongoing work, and um, uh, we know that there's an earthquake hazard. That's good. We have building codes that take that into account, um, but we still have to think about what are the worst-case scenarios or even the not worst-case but sort of most likely scenarios that city planners, um, emergency managers, et cetera, have to plan for. And I think that's evolving. And I think this new research is, is pushing it to show that the hazard is, uh, is greater than was thought before. Right. Which just means that we need to be more prepared, which is something we're not very good at, Dr. Tobin. Yeah, unfortunately, um, earthquakes are the kind of event that happens very infrequently. So they're sort of very much out of sight, out of mind, but when they happen, they come without warning and, uh, and our preparation is, is not up to snuff. I mean, I would, I would be, you know, um, at least I'd give us a, 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 a passing grade for making progress. And I think a lot of work has been done. Uh, we certainly build much safer buildings than we used to. And there's been a lot of effort to retrofit older ones. But there's clearly a long way to go in any population center you can choose in the entire Salish Sea region. And, uh, and I would just, you know, urge that preparation is key. We don't know when it's going to strike. We could have no significant damaging earthquake in the next decade, or one could happen tomorrow, and we just have to be ready for that possibility. And we have a lot of work then on that front. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. That's Dr. Harold Tobin, who's a professor in the uh, Perils Endowed Chair in Seismology and Geohazards in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington. It's fascinating work that they're doing to see what the history of earthquakes has been like here in the kind of Pacific Northwest is what they call it in the United States, but our South Coast region as well. And preparing us for the next one, well, that's something that I think we all need to work on.